Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 269th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Michael Hartman. Michael is the founder of Hyperion Financial, an independent RIA based in Shillington, Pennsylvania, that oversees almost $60 million in assets under management for 75 client households. What's unique about Michael, though, is how he fast-tracked his transition away from his insurance roots to become a fee-only RIA by making the investment to acquire commission-based book of clients and convert them to fee-only as well. In this episode, we talk in depth about the way Michael built a financial planning fee model with a base financial planning fee that then offsets AUM fees against it when clients want him to manage assets after creating the comprehensive plan. How Michael and his team leverage a client service calendar and surge meetings to more efficiently create a high-touch experience for clients. And how Michael and his firm present clients with a one-page financial snapshot at every meeting to remind clients of their financial goals and reassure them those goals are on track. We also talk about how Michael's discovery of the financial planning world through publications and podcasts inspired him to pursue a career change as a financial advisor. How after being weighed down for years by the contractual obligations of insurance companies he worked for, Michael realized he needed to acquire his CFP designation to take his career to the next level. And how Michael ultimately recognized he needed to become an independent firm owner to achieve the freedom to serve clients the way that he craved and achieve his personal business aspirations. And be certain to listen to the end, where Michael shares how he persevered through losing three out of his six team members, including his wife, while trying to transition the insurance company he worked for into the financial planning space. How taking a personal pause with an eight-week road trip gave Michael the clarity to purchase a local insurance firm and convert it into an independent RIA. And how Michael has lived firsthand the challenge that, much like being a parent for the first time, research and preparation can only get you so far, and at some point, You just have to take the leap to make your business what you think it can become. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Michael Hartman. Welcome, Michael Hartman, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thanks, Michael. Uh, Thrilled to be here. I'm glad to have you on today. I'm really looking forward to the discussion around some of the the pathways that we take in a, in the launching independent advisory businesses. And you know, I know you you had a kind of an, an interesting pathway that you in, in some ways many of us have. You you started out in the insurance side of the industry and ultimately moved to the advice side of the business. I I, I did the same thing for for my career as well. But you have I, I thought had an interesting way that you I guess made made the transition or tried to accelerate the transition, which was you had decided to accelerate the transition to a fee-only practice by buying a commission-based book of business. So you could get like a critical mass of clients and potential assets that maybe go from from you know commission trails to to advisory business. And so just when I had heard about your story, I was really fascinated with this idea of like, huh, buying out a book of commission clients to accelerate the transition to a fee-based practice. I feel like we need to hear that story and how how that works and how you like come to the point of saying like, I realize I want to leave the insurance world. How do I accelerate this path? I've got it. Let's buy other insurance clients. Like, how does how does that play out to get to that vision of how to how to take the journey? Yeah, you know, it's definitely been a uh, unique journey, like you said, and I'm happy to share some of that as as we talk here. 
So I, I think to kick us off, I, I'd love to just talk a little bit about where the business is today, just to sort of set the table. Of what, let's find out where this journey ended and has taken you, and then we'll talk a little bit more about how you made this transition and the dynamics of like buying commission-based practice to turn it into a fee-only practice. So start us off with just tell us about your advisory firm as it exists today. Sure. So uh, name of the RIA is Hyperion Financial. We launched on in Memorial Day of 2021. There are three team members, including myself. And by way of, of the way we measure things, primarily an AUM business. So we've got approaching 60 million of assets under management here for 75 client households. We do have a subset of clients in addition to those 75 that are strictly investment management clients. Uh, and that's primarily because of the the book of business that we had purchased prior to this this transition. But yeah, that's that's how we sit today. Okay. And so what's the nature of the practice today in terms of just like what do you do? What do you do for clients at this point? Like you <laughs> you mentioned some are strictly investment management. So I'm presuming that means the the rest are more financial planning oriented. But what do you do for clients at Hyperion? Yeah, I think probably not too dissimilar to to most folks. You know, we go by the term comprehensive financial planning, like I'm sure a lot of a lot of us do. And it's everything from retirement income planning, tax planning. We've got clients really across the spectrum. So we're helping them plan for their kids' education. We're helping pay off student loans, buy houses, plan so, timing, social security timing, Medicare, all that kind of stuff. So really across the gamut, we try and hit just about everything. Amongst the three of us, there are two of us, which are primarily lead advisors, myself and Dan. So we've, we've got a, a pretty wide array of clients. Okay. And what's the fee structure look like for them? You had said you're primarily AUM, but is that ultimately like all AUM? You do some hourly fees? Like what's the fee structure that comes together for this client base? Yeah. So so most of my clients are, are really those folks that are at retirement or nearing retirement. So for all of them, it's it's pretty much an AUM fee structure. But we do have clients, like I said, that are not in, a, in retirement mode or nearing retirement. So for everybody else, we have a minimum fee of thirty-seven fifty a year. What we do is we typically we offset any AUM fee we're collecting against that thirty-seven fifty. So especially for your younger clients that may not have assets or or many assets, they're really paying a a monthly a monthly retainer fee. Interesting. So you've got a base planning model and the AUM offsets that as opposed to having a base AUM model and, and planning fees offset in the other direction. Really the way it works because our fee schedule starts at one and a half percent and it and it tears down from there. Really, once a client has two hundred fifty thousand dollars or more in, in investable assets with us, then it just goes strictly to an AUM fee. If they're less than that two fifty, then just the way the math works is there's a you know there's a remaining difference between the AUM fee and the thirty seven fifty minimum where we're billing that client on a monthly basis, a monthly retainer fee. Interesting, and and so and so I guess that gets you around the whole conversation of having asset minimums. You don't end up with asset minimums. You simply got a fee minimum. By the time you're at a certain level of assets, your assets will cover the whole fee, but ultimately you're a minimum fee, not a minimum assets firm. Exactly right. Okay. And I guess I'm just wondering for the clients that are below that threshold, just how does that literally work? I, I, I mean, just AUM fees are usually quarterly. I think you said your your planning fees for the minimum is is monthly. So like, just how do you actually do the offsets and the and the and the coordinating between them if they're getting calculated on different cadences. How does that work? Yeah, it's a good question. So every year we'll look at it once a year and just kind of kind of match up the differences or true it up. So, you know, for example, if we're managing a hundred thousand dollars of a client's asset and the fee is one and a half percent, 
we'll just take that $1,500 fee and, and offset it against the $3,750 minimum and then build the difference throughout the next year just to, to get us to that to that minimum fee number. Okay. So in practice, like if if the market pulls back and suddenly the combined fee is actually a little under $3,750, you're, you're not necessarily going back to them to, to adjust the, the base fee higher. And likewise, if the portfolio starts growing above that level, then you end out a little bit higher than the $3,750 minimum fee because the, the subscription part is set and then the portfolio growth lists them a little higher. But that's just that's just part of the deal. Yep, yep. Okay. And so is that just kind of the core service all the way through? Like minimum fee is $3,750. The AUM fee schedule kicks in from there. And you know, if, if you want our services based on that fee schedule, we'd, we'd be happy to work with you. Yeah, that's that's more or less correct. I mean, we do have for me specifically, I you know, I really I set my personal minimum fee at seventy five hundred dollars. So that's because with with the way our team is structured, I am working with the retirees or the folks that are nearing retirement. So there are some services that will typically combine or throw in or include, I should say, with those with those retirees. And that's more so on the tax planning side of things. So we're running tax projections. We're doing pretty extensive retirement income planning. Even this year, we're looking to roll out tax preparation as well. So we're, we're partnering with a local CPA to, to do the client's return, and, and we'll be paying for that uh, return for the clients that, that meet that $7,500 minimum fee. So the, the minimum fee does scale up. We've got a little flexibility based on the services, depending on, on the type of client that, that we're working with. Okay. So I get it for the retiring clients, like tax projections, retirement income planning, all the things that that go with that dynamic and, and folks that tend to have a higher asset base. So what are you doing for clients? Because it sounds like you've got older clients and well, not, not older clients, not near retirement clients who may be at the lower minimum fee schedule of 3750 and $7,500. So what, is, what does planning services look like for, for the non-retiree folks? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's really anything from, uh, I think I may have mentioned, so student loan planning, planning for college education for, for kids or for parents that have kids going to school, home purchase planning. Unfortunately, we had a client yesterday contact us and, and they're getting a divorce. So you know, I know those, those life events happen. We're, we're helping yep. them na- navigate that situation. Employee benefit reviews, you know, really all your I would say most of your standard stuff that I, I would assume most most advisors are working with, we're we're certainly doing that as well. I guess I'm wondering how do you how do you frame that to the client for explaining the value proposition when you're you're talking about a three thousand seven hundred and fifty dollar minimum fee, but you know oh their their assets maybe are only air quotes only a hundred thousand dollars, so like a significant portion of the fee is not the portfolio at that point. Just how do you how do you explain the the value proposition for the fees? Yeah, we really try and lead everything with financial planning at this point. So the way we describe it to clients is our minimum fee is $3,750, and that's for financial planning. What we do, though, is because we do have give them the option to manage their, their investments, in doing so, we the way we explain it to clients is that if we are managing the investments, that fee that we're collecting to do so helps offset that $3,750 minimum planning fee. So it's very much position in a way of financial planning so that especially the 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 non-retirees the younger clients that you know really aren't the planning isn't being driven so much by their assets they definitely understand that it's financial planning at the forefront of what we do because literally planning sets the baseline of the of the fee exactly and out of curiosity just how how did you set the the fees i mean picking picking 3750 as a minimum picking one and a half percent as the the star of the fee schedule since as i'm, I'm sure you know right like proverbial industry benchmark is one percent you're uh, starting at a higher number than that 
So how did you set AUM fees and, and planning minimum fees? A lot of trial and error. <laughs> you know, on the, on the AUM side, I think I've really tried to surround myself or, or network myself with advisors that are, are focused on delivering the most value possible to clients. And, and I've seen in, in the folks that I've interact with, interacted with in those circles that, yes, the 1% is your, is your typical fee, but we really want to go the extra mile. And, and I think in doing so, that allows us to charge a, what some may call a premium fee. Uh, again, our, our fee schedule does ladder down from the 1.5%, but that's really how, how, we, how we pick the AUM fee is really just trying to deliver the most, amount of, the most value possible to those clients. And then on the, on the financial planning side of things, certainly I've read a lot of, a lot of what you've wrote about valuing your time and, and trying to, to map all that out. And I think just... So back of the envelope math, I think the way we figured out just with the amount of planning work that we're doing throughout the year with a client and what that adds up to from an hourly standpoint, we came out somewhere in the ballpark of 200 to $250 an hour for our time. Again, for the average client based off of typically two to three meetings a year, these, you know, the stuff that comes up throughout the year. And then again, all the financial planning work that we're doing up front and then ongoing that's really how we settled on that number. But it's, it's, it's certainly a work in progress. We're constantly evaluating whether that number should, should be changed. So something the effect of we, we value our time at, at $250 an hour by the time I go through all the meetings in between meeting work and the stuff that we're going to do for clients, it's going to take an estimate of 15 hours a year on average. So 15 hours per client times $250, that's our $3,750 minimum fee. Exactly. Yep. So how do you figure out what that anticipated time commitment for the year is going to be? I mean, do you, do you have a, a process for how you do the planning services through the year? Because I feel like for a lot of advisors, it's, well, I know how long it's going to be because I don't know what my clients are going to call me about and what stuff's going to come up. So we've adopted a few things that I that I, I know many of your listeners would be familiar with. So surge meetings are a huge part of our process. We meet, we try and meet with all planning clients at least twice a year. So right off the bat, we know that between those meetings, the prep work, the follow-up work that goes into those meetings, uh, I mean, that's probably half of those 15 hours in and of itself. Certainly have things that come up throughout the year with with clients that ask questions, whether that's through emails or phone calls or what have you. And then we do have a service calendar. So we, we've, you know, we're hitting a lot of things, like I had mentioned, reviewing the tax return, tax projections, social security statements, credit cards, you know, all that kind of stuff is really part of our, our service model. So we tried to map it out on average. Again, certainly you have some clients that will take up more than that 15 hours throughout the year and some clients that honestly only want to meet once and, and they're just kind of on, a, <laughs> on autopilot. And, and that's, that's the way it works. It's just kind of the law of averages. It works itself out. And you're okay with the averages. So just for some advisors, like, no, I don't want to rely on averages. Like heavy use client, they're getting billed accordingly. Light use client, like we're going to build them less. You're, sounds like just you're, you're comfortable with, okay, in any particular year, some clients may use less than their 15 hours. Some clients may use more than their 15 hours, but this is our fee because it averages out the way that we serve clients and, and that works. Yeah, we are. I mean, I think we haven't had a situation occur where we feel like a client is, I don't want to use the word abusing our time, but but that that hasn't happened yet. If certainly, if it would, maybe we would be inclined to reevaluate that that average mentality. But for right now, it's it's definitely worked well. I think for us, and, and more importantly for the clients. Interesting. And, and I guess, can you just describe further what's what's on the client service calendar? I mean, what is what does that look like for you guys? Yeah. So uh, again, I, I can't take too much credit for for really a lot of these things. I've tried to adopt 
from people leading the field like yourself and, and many others. We're sending out our tax prep letter. So that's showing what tax forms clients should be expecting this coming tax year. Typically in February, we're sending a reminder to clients to make sure they download their their most recent social security statement just to make sure that you know everything's up to date and accurate. Throughout the year, again, we're reviewing investment accounts. We're sending reminders to make sure they've made their IRA contributions and HSA contributions prior to tax deadline. As we go towards the fall, we're running tax projections. We're, you know, Danny is Danny's niche is really more on the college planning side. So he's he's helping them with filling out the FAFSA and and some of the the time timing things that go into play from a college planning standpoint. Medicare open enrollment reminders, marketplace health insurance coverage open uh, you know, reminders. Those are some some examples. Uh, we'll also send out some information typically on credit card reward points and and things that they should be thinking about quarterly market commentaries. Those, those would be some examples of, of what that client service calendar looks like. Interesting. I'm, I'm struck a number of them are kind of re- reminder oriented. Like we, we may or may not be doing anything, right? You know, hey, this is the reminder of your marketplace health insurance open enrollment. They may say, hey, I'm, I'm good. We're covered. We don't really need to do anything with it. But that's fine. That was still, that was still a touch point. You, you still get credit for the touch points, as it were, even if it doesn't necessarily result in, a, in an action item that month. Yeah, and I think some other ones I probably should mention that that are more hands-on. So we're, we do review insurance coverages, property and casualty, life, disability. That's more of a hands-on process. And then another one I would mention too is typically every year or every other year, we put together a, a beneficiary checklist and also a beneficiary review form. So again, just making sure that clients' accounts, whether it's insurance policies or investment accounts, their beneficiaries are updated. They reflect you know, what they're, what they want those wishes to look like. And so the client service calendar just lays out month by month or quarter by quarter, like just literally here, here's what we're doing when. Exactly. Yep. We, we break it into the first half of the year and the second half of the year. It's actually something that, that we share with prospective clients as well, because as you can imagine, one of the questions comes up is, yep. well, what do you do? And uh, it's really a good way for us to articulate the kind of planning that we're doing throughout the year, in addition to the time that they're seeing us in those typically semi-annual meetings and sometimes more, sometimes less. So, Chris, you're just are you willing to to share a copy of the the client service calendar for others that want to see what what this looks like if they haven't done one before? Absolutely, I appreciate that. So, so if if anyone's interested in in seeing what a client service calendar looks like, this is episode two hundred and sixty nine. So, if you go to kitsis.com slash two six nine, we'll have a, a link in the show notes for for Michael's client service calendar. So, Michael, you've got the client service calendar that sets out the stuff that you're going to do. That uh, it sounds like that forms the baseline of what you're doing. Client meetings occur on average twice a year with a surge meeting structure, and then investment management's happening on an ongoing basis for whatever whatever assets you're managing for them as well. Yep. So, can you describe for us a little bit more surge meetings? Just h- how does that work in practice in your firm? Yeah. So uh, again, I'll have to give credit to Matthew Jarvis. Episode seven was really a game changer for me. I'm sure many others as well on your podcast. And and we've really adopted his practice of, of surge meeting. And I know several others that have that have talked about this too that, I'll, that I would give credit to. So the way it works from a process standpoint for us is we'll typically send out an email to all of our clients about six weeks or so before we want our first surge block to take place, which typically are in April and in October or when we run our surge meetings. So email will be going out 
that here in the next month or so to clients, letting them know that, again, the, the uh, upcoming review, review meeting blocks are, are coming up here, gives them the opportunity to book those meetings on my Calendly is, is what we use to run those meetings. So clients will schedule during a, a time slots that we have available. And then once they're getting on the calendar, my team and I are really working to put together the meeting outlines, go over any you know, previous meeting notes, action items, tasks, things that, that we need to make sure we're on top of, and also the deliverables that we would be covering during the meeting with the clients. So what are, what are meeting outlines for you? It starts with a Google document. So we'll, we'll take, you know, prior to this, the spring review as an example, or spring surge, I should say, we'll, we'll get together as a team, the three of us and brainstorm, what, what do we want to cover during these upcoming meetings? And it's anything from, you know, some of the main points would be anything market related that might be going on. Anything with a lot of the legislation, things that have occurred in the last few years, we'll certainly include them on the outlines. And then it becomes client specific. So it's what's going on in their lives, what we covered in previous meetings, what their goals are, are are certainly something that's on every meeting outline because we want to make sure we're helping them make progress towards their goals. Taxes are a part of every meeting. So, you know, in the spring, it's it's always a, a reminder to make sure that they've uploaded their tax return to the vault. We use eMoney. So we're making sure that we're reviewing tax returns in those meetings. And in the fall, we're running tax projections. Depending on the time of year, uh, we're reviewing insurance policies. So if we catch something in when they've uploaded their, their most recent declarations page that, that might need an adjustment, we'll include that in the meeting outline. And then towards the end is always, is always just next steps and things we're going to cover in the, in the next meeting or, or in the interim. So you've got a, it sounds like a, just a standing template of kind of this meeting agenda structure. So you know, news and events, right, market, legislative, whatever it is, the client-specific things around what we covered last meeting, check-in on goals, check-in on taxes, check-in on other planning issues, and then next steps of where are we going from here? Yeah, exactly. And and cash flow is a big component too, because we want to make sure if there's anything that's come up to them for them or anything they expect coming up, especially for the retirees, that we're we're taking into account what that cash flow looks like. And then you'd mentioned associated deliverables that you queue up. So what are what are deliverables for you? What are you bringing as deliverables into client meetings? Yeah, so I'd mentioned the the beneficiary checklist. That's that's something that we'll review pretty much every year to make sure the beneficiaries are, are up to date with the various insurance and investment policies. That's typically in the fall surge. Every meeting we have what we call a financial snapshot. So it's a it's a one page Excel document that we kind of modified. We got it from somebody else that was doing something similar, and we modified it for our own purposes. and And it includes pretty much anything about their financial situation that that you can think of. You know, it has obviously where money's at. It has names, dates of birth. It has goals. It has if they're retirees, it's showing what their income is currently, be it through Social Security or distributions from retirement accounts. We do practice for the retirees. We do practice a guardrails kind of a retirement income philosophy. So we're, so we're showing on that on that snapshot where they're at from a distribution standpoint in in relation to the pre-described guardrails approach. We have on there liability limits for insurance policies, also insurance coverage amounts, and it's just it's just something that's become really instrumental for us in in when we're running these meetings to be able to look at it and say, okay, here's 
here's what the client's financial situation looks like. And, and the benefit, I think, for them moving forward is one of the things we do track on there is net worth. So we're pretty clearly able to, to show the clients, you know, in the last six months, your net worth has increased by this number, or in the last couple of years, it's increased by this number. And and we spell all that out. And, and part of that process is using e-money, making sure the client's accounts are connected. But there's just a lot of information on there that e-money ne- doesn't necessarily capture that it's a very manual process. I will warn anybody that if they were thinking about going down this route, Tyler in my office would, would tell you there's a lot of time that goes into updating this information, but it's really become something that when the clients are coming into the meeting and they see if it's in person, if we throw it up on the TV screen, they want to spend time on it. They want to know, you know how the net worth has changed or they want to know like, hey, what, what's that number there or, or what's that? It's really become an important part of our process. So it sounds like this is kind of one-page financial plan-esque, but you're calling it a snapshot, and it's, and it's not necessarily the upfront financial planning process deliverable. This is your ongoing client check-in, like deliverable anchor document. Very much so, yeah. And, and I would say um, this document in particular, I'm a big fan of the one-page financial plan. This document in particular is is much more quantitative than than some of the one-page financial plans I've seen something we have on our radar here is to is to really kind of enhance it through some of the qualitative measures that I think a, a really good one-page financial plan can cover. Uh, but from a quantitative standpoint, I think this really, it really has worked well for us. And is this something you, you'd be willing to share a, a copy of, just kind of like a, a PDF of what one of these looks like in, in output for a sample client? For sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Awesome. So if anyone's curious to see the one-page financial snapshot as well, uh, this is episode 269. So again, kitsis.com slash 269. And we'll we'll have some links out for samples of what Michael's client service calendar and, and financial snapshot look like. So I, I am struck, Michael, that you said like you pull some of the information in from eMoney Advisor to be able to get like you know, net, uh, updated net worth because you've got the account aggregation tracking. But I'm struck like you're you're not necessarily building around eMoney for your deliverables. Like you made your own you made your own thing instead. So I guess I'm just wondering how like how do you think about the role of planning software versus deliverables that you're creating? Yeah, you know, it's I'm not going to claim to be an e-money expert per se. So if there's if there's a better way to do it, I'm all ears. Uh, it's definitely a very manual process that that we've done here. But for us, when we're using financial planning software, it's very much for us. The features that we're using, I should say, are certainly the account aggregation tools. The vault is a, is a critical part of the process for us because that's how we're sharing confidential information and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And then we are using, uh, especially for the younger clients, the the spending tab of eMoney to set them up with a budget and, and track spending. Those are some of the features that we use heavily. I think from the as far as some of the planning calculators and some of those tools or even the outputs, the plan, we'll call it in air quotes here, the you know, the 50, 60 page plus plan, that's not something that we've really implemented at this point in time just because we feel like sometimes less is more. So are there other deliverables that you tend to bring into into surge meetings? You mentioned beneficiary checklist in the fall surge. You mentioned financial snapshots. That sounds like you do like every every client, every meeting you do an, an update to the snapshot, which I guess just pull out the existing snapshot and change the numbers that have changed. So are, are there other deliverables that you're leveraging as well, or is that your your primary ones, your primary go-tos? The only other one I'd mention as far as a primary go-to, there are others, but the only other one I'd mention as a, as a primary go-to would be we're extensive users of Holista Plan, so I'll give them a big shout out. They've been fantastic as far as 
tax projections and tax summaries are concerned, we we definitely incorporate both of those things, the projections and the summaries in, in each of our client meetings. So plugging client tax returns in a holistic plan, letting it do its its number crunching analysis and then using the tax summaries as one of the the takeaway documents, takeaway deliverables for client meetings. Absolutely. Yep. And so for surges themselves, just how do you run them? I'm 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 trying to do rough math in my head of 75 clients in the span of a month, but there are two of you doing the meetings. So I guess on average, each of you has like 30 or 35 or 40 client meetings to do in the in the span of a month. So is that, does that add up for what it looks like? I'm, I'm just trying to break that down. That's like three or four client meetings a day, uh, a couple of days a week for a month. And then you get through all the client meetings for, for six months. Yeah, that that's correct. I I'm I'm primarily responsible for 55 of those 75 planning clients. So for me, a, a normal surge week is somewhere between t- 10 to 12 meetings a week. We block out Monday for prep days and Friday for follow up. Uh, so it's Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday is you know normally three to four meetings a day for a month straight, and it's a lot of work <laughs> as as you can imagine, but it, it's really worked well for for our process and. And uh, some of the goals we have outside of the business, as we're all younger guys and growing families and all that kind of stuff. Because just that's the virtue of surges. At the end of the day, is like it's an intense month, but then you're then you're done, and you have very little in the way of client meetings for another five months. I mean, obviously, people have something that comes up, but your check-ins are done in a month, one intense month. But then there's no no more no more need for ongoing meetings for five months until you get to the next surge. That's right. And I, and I think it also allows you to really hone in on, on again, the deliverables. It allows you to hone in on the same conversation. You're having the same conversations every day for a month. So I guess some people could view that as repetitive or boring. But for us, I think it just creates more efficiency so that you know, these are, these are our review meetings blocks. These are, this is what we're doing. We don't take on new clients during that time period. It just allows us to really deliver the most value to clients as surge meetings have, have definitely been something we've, we've enjoyed or benefited from as far as an implementation standpoint. And do you still end out with many client meetings in between just in practice? Does that come up for you or have your clients really flowed into a, like they come in for their surges and then there's really not many other meetings? Yeah, because we've because we've been doing it for uh, maybe two years or so now, the clients have really gotten the cadence down really well to the point where, if it's if it's something in between meetings, a lot of times they'll say to us like, "Hey, I know we're meeting in the fall, uh, so this can wait until then." But just wanted to give you a heads up on this is going on. You know that so that's been really great, and and that's definitely true of of the retirees in particular. For our younger clients, we are meeting more than more than twice a year typically, and and they just have more going on. There definitely does tend to be meetings in between those two meetings a year, the, the surge blocks that we have that we have blocked out there for that group of people. So I think that gives us a pretty good grounding in in what the advisory firm looks like on an on an ongoing basis now. So now take us take us back to to the start to the the early days in the in the business before you launched this whole direction. I I, I so I understand you you had started out in the insurance commissions based side of the business. So talk to us a little about how you got started on this on this journey. Yeah. Oh man. Um, so I went to school for finance, and my junior year was two thousand eight. 
Uh, so I was looking for the time, was looking to find an internship. And, and my mom's act, my mom actually, uh, she retired. She had a job in corporate finance and always loved what she did. I've always enjoyed working with numbers. And I thought that that was the route I wanted to go. But again, it was 2008. There really wasn't much available in my local area from an internship standpoint. Mm, not, not the best <laughs> time to be trying to find an internship in finance. Yeah. So, you know, what was available, as you as you can imagine, were the wirehouses and the insurance company internships. So I, I, I didn't know a whole lot about that world at the time. I did interview with, with a major insurance company and a major wirehouse. And in those instances, I got what I've, what I've heard others have said, and then it was true of me as well. You know, in, in the one, it was, hey, you know, you're going to come in, you're going to really be responsible for bringing in the donuts. And if my car needs to be washed, you'll do that. And, you know, you'll help with some of this stuff here and there and we'll find something for you to do. <laughs> and very gracious of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and with the other one, it was, uh, they had a very s- structured internship program. This was a, the, the major insurance company. And the, the managing director said to me very clearly, he said, you know, Mike, we're going to, we, we'll bring in 10 people. One of you will make it out of the internship because you're, it's only the sharks survive. And you're going to, here's the phone book. You're going to be calling. You're going to be reaching out to people. You're going to be doing, you know, all this kind of stuff. And he was very clear about it. And I had those two conversations. I uh, wasn't really, you know, really enthralled with, with what those opportunities were. But fortunately, my parents actually at the same time were going through a financial planning process with, with an advisor. And my mom mm. knew some of the struggles I, I had going on here. And she just, she just said to the advisor, she said, you know, my son would love to do an, an internship opportunity. We enjoy working with you. Is there any way he could just shadow you for the summer? And fortunately, that advisor said yes, and, and I'm glad he did because I wouldn't be here having this conversation if, if not for that. And that was the start. You know, I, I followed him around for a summer, sat in on some client meetings, got to see what what he does, and and it was great. I, I really enjoyed the aspect of working with people and helping people, and and certainly the finance part of it too. So you know, when that when that internship happened uh, the next year, they, they offered me a position. And again, this was with one of the major insurance companies. And that's really how I got my start in the career is, is that internship. So where did it go next? I, mean, I guess I mean, you, you, you stayed. <laughs> so you, didn't, you didn't do the inter- internship and like nope out the door. So what, what came next? Yeah, so the next part was was again what was some folks were probably pretty pretty familiar with. I mean, the the early part of the process was they called it the Project 100. So it was the write 100 names down of friends and family, and those are the people you're going to reach out to. But again, fortunately, I I had this mentor, and one of the things he said to me early on, he was pretty direct about it. He said, "You know what, Mike? Uh, all your friends they don't have money, so you really need to you really need to be reaching out to your parents' friends, and and these are the people that we can help and and we could do planning for." And I knew at the time, my mom again was in corporate finance. She worked for the, the local utility company here, really great pension, uh, company benefit plan, all that kind of stuff. And he said to me, my mentor just said, well, why don't we try and, and work with folks at that company? And to his credit, th- that ended up you know, being a, a really great strategy. The way that started, we knew we really couldn't leverage my mom because she's my mom <laughs> you know, in, in, trying to, in trying to work with folks. So she had somebody that she was actually mentoring at the company around my age that was just had a number of questions related to just setting up a budget and, and all that kind of stuff. So I had a conversation with her and, and really just offered her as much advice as I could. And 
unbeknownst to me at the time, she was just super connected with with folks within the company. Like she was in charge of the weekly golf league, and and she just had you know the respect of a lot of her peers. And and I, I never would have dreamed it, but that really led to being connected to some of my best clients today. Actually, she introduced me to them and just said, "Hey, you know what? Mike mm-hmm. spent this hour plus with me of just helping with a budget." I think he might be able to help you. And from there, that led to, we did several, uh, for years, we did several lunch and learn meetings at the company. I spent hours upon hours just reading the company benefits plan. And and I caught things in there that many of the employees weren't aware of as far as some benefits that they had that they could take advantage of. So when we would have these, these lunch meetings, we'd get 20, 30 people in a room a couple times a year. And from every one of them, we've got, again, to this day, some of our, some of my very best clients. And, that was really the the first several years of, of my career. And and you know, one of the things that we did in addition to, you know, going into that that company niche, one of the strategies, again, because at the time it w- I was with the insurance company. So life insurance obviously was a, needed to be at the forefront of every conversation from a contractual standpoint of, of keeping your job with the insurance company. And and to be fair, I, I did believe in the product as well. So this company, like I said, they had a they had a great pension plan. So the the conversation my mentor and I would have with with the majority of these prospective clients would be based around that that strategy you've probably heard of the pension max uh, pension maximization strategy yep. where, where you're using life insurance to leverage or pick one of the one of the higher pension options and and I think it worked really well. I mean the the, the employees were very receptive to the idea. It wasn't something that they had heard of and and honestly um, had it not been for that that introduction from that young girl that that we helped with the budget that I'm not sure uh, where I'd be here today. Interesting. So focus into a niche with a local company got what ultimately became like one good center of influence refer within the company and all the momentum came from there. Yeah. Yeah. I think early on, especially that that company probably accounted for 80 plus percent of my clients at the time. Very cool. Very cool. So what came next? You survived, still here. So so chucking along. So you you got some initial traction. What came next in in growing the business? So I think the next part, really, as the business was growing, um, was having some success based off you know the, the metrics that the company would measure by, which one of which was MDRT, Million Dollar Roundtable, was something that was promoted within the company and was fortunate enough to to qualify for MDRT in in 2015. Had had my best year at the time. Was about five years into the, the career at that point. You know, I had accomplished that that goal, if you want to call it that. And but at the same time, I I felt like while I was working with my my mentor, he had been in the business forty plus years at this point. I've been on teams my whole life through sports and, and otherwise, and, and I felt like this was something. This business was something I wanted to experience with others as as part of a team. So what ended up happening from there is is I actually changed insurance companies. I switched over to one of the other major insurance companies here, and and they were very supportive of of that team concept and and the vision that I had and and, and building that out. So we made that change, and that company, which is which was my most recent company before we launched the RIA last year, they're a great group of folks. I, I I was I would speak very highly of them. I had a great experience working with with them. But I think as we'll talk about, one of the challenges when you're trying to build a t- any team, but especially a team in an insurance company framework is 
contractually, the way things work, when you're an employee of the insurance company, you have requirements, contractually, validation, things like that, that you're required to do a certain amount of business. And if you're not doing that or someone on the team isn't doing that, that, be- that can become problematic for their, for their future in, in, in that world. So well, they, they are an insurance company at the end of the day, <laughs> right? I mean, just, yep. that, that is their business. Yeah. And so while we had uh, a really great group of people that we were working with, with that, with that most recent insurance company, you know, eventually it got to the point where, where it was just becoming pro- problematic for some of the members of the team to, to reach some of those goals. And it was a very much, you know, you've, you've, I'm sure heard the term that, you know, the eat what you kill, you know, commission type of, uh, of setup. And while we were a team in name, it, it really didn't always feel like that because at the end of the day, I had my requirements, they had theirs. And, and that's just ultimately the way it worked. And what ended up happening kind of had this aha moment where for the first really seven years of my career, I just kind of stuck to that insurance company world. I was very much, you know, those were my peers. It was the people at the company, the broker dealer, whatever it may be. I I really hadn't expanded outside of that. And one day, I'm not sure exactly how I I stumbled across it, but I stumbled across this uh, website you may have heard of called Kitsis.com. And no, um, I've, <laughs> yeah. I've heard of that. It's like blue website, seen it before. Blue, yeah, yeah, exactly. So stumbled across your website for the first time and it was just like just like this light bulb went off. I, I went down a rabbit hole and I, I I came across the podcast. I saw the XYPN podcast as well. You know, unfortunately my dad was actually in the hospital at the time and we were going back and forth to the hospital daily for probably the better part of a week or two. And it's almost an hour from, from where we live um, currently. So I just dove in. I was just reading and listening to everything everything imaginable that, that you were publishing and, and some others were publishing. And it was just, it was like an epiphany. I, I just never knew that this whole other world existed from a financial planning standpoint. I had felt like at times in the insurance company world that you know, there's probably something we're missing here if, if a lot of these conversations tend to lead back to life insurance. And again, to be clear, I'm not, I know some others that feel pretty strongly that uh, specifically on on permanent life insurance and, and its merits. Um, I'm not here to, you know, to really have that argument. I, I do think there's a place for permanent life insurance and annuity products and things like that. But I knew at the same time, there was probably a better way to deliver value to clients. And there were things that they were asking about that were not necessarily insurance related. And, and we had some limitations there. So when I stumbled across your website while my dad was in the hospital, that really kind of uh, set the wheels in motion to, to continue to dive deeper and deeper into this financial planning world. And really the first conversation I ended up having was with Jeremy Walter, who uh, I believe you know you know pretty yeah. well here. He's, he's uh, the next town over from where I'm at. And at the time, I had came across his profile on the XYPN website. I saw he's about a half an hour from me. And I reached out cold and I just said, hey, you know, this is where I'm at. I've come across this whole new world of, of fee-only, RIA, financial planning, all this kind of stuff. Are you willing to have a conversation with me? And and graciously he, he was and we chatted for uh, probably about an hour or so and he was I think at the time maybe a year or so into launching his RIA and he was up front he just said look I, I don't have all the answers but here's what I know and and here's some of the things I'm doing and that was the first piece of validation to me to say like you know what this is something I want to explore more and at the same time every year the the insurance company that I was with 
we would do our annual kickoff meeting and, and we'd talk about individual goals for the year, firm goals for the year, just some of the things that the, the company was working on. And at that meeting, I, because I had gone down this rabbit hole, I just started raising my hand and I had all kinds of questions about how we could work with more young people, how we could <laughs> build a retainer model and how we could enhance our financial planning process and all this kind of stuff. And it just became pretty clear uh, as I continued to raise my hand that that was not going to be the focus of, of that annual meeting. So while honestly, my initial intent was to see if this was something, this business model and these practices were something that I could build out as, as part of that company, it became pretty clear pretty quickly that that wasn't going to be the case. And again, that's not a speaking illy on them. It just, it just wasn't, wasn't where their priorities were at the time. Okay. And so I'm presuming then that that kind of starts leading towards the natural conclusion of, so I want to do more of this and it's turning out I really can't do it at the company I'm at. So I'm going to have to go somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. So that that started to you know set those wheels in motion. But one of the things I knew from reading and, and listening to your content and many others is I didn't have my CFP at the time. And I knew that that was something that was important, especially if we wanted to really focus our efforts moving forward on financial planning. That was something that that I, I needed to get. So this was the beginning of 2018. And so that set that set the stage there that I, I definitely focused a lot of my efforts in 2018 to to passing the uh, the CFP in, in November. You know, ironically, my my dad unfortunately had passed away the the following year, and and at, at the time the CFP because some of the tax law changes that had gone into effect, you you didn't find out if you passed right away or the tentative pass fail. You know, when when you submitted the your, the final question, so it was a four or five week process until you until you got that letter and. We were at a memorial service for my dad. Actually, it was over the holidays of 2018, and and that's when I got the notice that that I had passed. And it was um, obviously a, a range of emotions there, but yeah. but pretty cool to get that notice on on that day in particular. So anyway, what ended up happening as we knew financial planning was the route we wanted to go. One of the changes we we also made at the time there was a, there was a team, and I'm using that in air quotes because again, it's it's a little tough uh, in an insurance company setup. But there was a team of six of us, and we knew that the commission world, which is exclusively what we had ran our business off of up until that point, that that was no longer going to be the case, and we were going to go down the fee based and ultimately the fee only route. So while at one point you know, MDRT qualification and, and some of those things were something that it achieved, that was no longer part of the plan. And we very quickly went from, you know, I'd say a pretty considerable amount of commission business to none, <laughs> almost overnight. And and that cut the team in half quickly. So we, we dropped from... I was say, I mean, just what does that do from a literal revenue perspective? Yeah, uh, it changed it quite a bit. So we, we dropped from 16 members to three Pretty much instantly, including my wife, who was actually part of part of our team. I had I had convinced her a year or two prior to to join the team, and her background was in nonprofit. But she's always been great of helping us with different marketing things or, or deliverables or things we're putting together. She really has a knack for that kind of stuff. So I'd convinced her to join the team, and she was doing that. But it became pretty clear that when the the income and, and the revenue changed, that some changes were going to need to be made. So. I outlined that vision, and and like I said, half the team was no longer part of the team moving forward. Uh, we did have of the three of us that that have still stayed part of it. We are we are still here today. But even at that point, um, Danny, who was again part of the team, he actually 
he took a job at we, our office is located within a property and casualty company. So he actually took a part time job with them just to just to help pay, pay the bills. Honestly, we 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 weren't in a position to to pay him. So he he kind of bit the bullet and and was was took that job downstairs and he would work there for about six hours a day. Then he would come upstairs and and do what needed to be done as we were building the financial planning business. Tyler, my my other counterpart, I I pleaded with him to to stay. I I offered him a twenty four thousand dollars salary, which I had no idea honestly at that point. I mean, I had some insurance renewal business and and things like that that, that were fairly considerable. But outside of that, there wasn't much. And I pretty much allocated all those renewals or most of them anyway to, to his salary because I knew he would just be such an instrumental part of, of the business that we wanted to build. And he said, yes, thankfully. So that was the team. It went from six to three, which was really more like two-ish for, for probably a year or two. And it changed quite a bit. But you know, in my mind, the reason we had to make that change and there was no going back once I had seen what I had seen and listened to what I had listened to, there's a quote I've heard, and, and I don't know if you've heard this one, um, and ironically, it came from somebody in the insurance world where I first heard it, but the quote goes like this. It says, a person who is honestly mistaken when confronted with the truth will either cease to be honest or cease to be mistaken. And for me, that was that was something that's always rung true. Like once I realized that there was, you know, I would argue a better way of of helping clients or doing business, there was just no going back. I, I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't go back to the way we were doing things. So I was all in and I I communicated that direction and and understandably so that that meant the team needed to change. But fortunately um, Dan and Tyler stuck with me and 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 still have stuck with me to this point where we're at today. But it, it was really tough. Really tough. So, what came next? Like you've now kind of sh- shell shocked yourself into the new into the new transition, but now your team shrunk down, the revenue shrunk down. You're presumably trying to build back to something. So, what what comes next? So, while all this was happening, a few years prior, actually, I had reached out to there was a local advisor in my in my hometown that I had stayed in touch with. He he was older, and I knew just based off our conversations that at some point in time, he was going to retire. And so we had stayed in touch. We'd go out to lunch every, you know, a couple times a year, things like that. And it became clear as, as time went along and our conversations continued to evolve, it got to the point where in, in January of 2019, he told me that he wanted me to to take over his business and ultimately purchase his business. And and that was something that we ended up coming to a, I'll just call it a handshake agreement at the time that that's what he wanted. That's what I wanted as well for a lot of reasons that I'm sure we'll get into. And that was really, that was really part of the next phase. So this was the beginning of, of 2019. Meanwhile, I was having conversations with another local advisor who I, who I respect and admire greatly. And he was in the independent insurance broker dealer space. We had conversations just about potentially merging our firms and, and Danny Tyler, Danny Tyler and I joining him and some of the needs he had and some of the things they were able to do being an independent broker dealer. That was something that was attractive to us. We had a lot of uh, similarities as far as how we approached planning. And we started going down that, that conversation. Ultimately that, that merger did not happen. Uh, and that's primarily because um, while this was all taking place, I decided to take a eight week or two month road trip across the country. Um, we had, you know, with my dad's passing, it just became clear that and everything that was going on, it was just something like, you know, there's no time like the present sometimes. And I'd always wanted to 
visit a number of the national parks and I'm a huge baseball fan. So it was summer, it was baseball season. So the national parks and baseball were, were very much of interest to me. And I was able to convince my wife to, and she was able to convince her employer when she went back into nonprofit, she was able to convince them to, to allow that. So we took this eight week road trip as coincidence would have it, Michael, you may or may not remember this, but I stopped at the XYPN headquarters in, in Montana as part of my road trip. And I actually met you for the very first time at, at this, uh, the middle of this road trip. And what ended up happening from there as we were on this journey and, and we had, we had verbally agreed to join the, the independent broker dealer and the local advisor. But as I was on this journey, it just became clear to me that I was never going to be happy and we were never going to be happy unless we did our own thing. And we went the fee only RIA route. It was just something that, that continued to resonate with me and stick with me. So from when, when we returned to that road trip, I let the advisor know that that wasn't the direction we were going to be going. And from that point forward, it was really moving towards the, the RIA direction and, and going fee only. Um, we did have a conversation with, with a local advisor here that was, that was fee only as well about, you know, hey, does it make sense to possibly merge our firms together? Because the one thing I kept coming back to is just, you don't know what you don't know. And I had never obviously started an RIA. I was honestly pretty scared to do it. So, so this advisor that I had become pretty close with, I, I, we approached them and just said, hey, this is what we're looking to do. If, if you'd have any interest, we'd love to have that conversation. And we had some conversations, but ultimately the timing, uh, I don't think was right on, on, on our end. So we made the decision to, to launch the RIA and go solo. While this was all happening, I was in conversations with the retiring advisor about buying his, his book of business. So from January of, of 2019 um, until November of 2019, ultimately when we came to an agreement, we were meeting with his clients. He was introducing me as someone that was going to take over the business. We would introduce the team, myself, Dan and Tyler. Um, and I met with, with a lot of clients, uh, not all of them. Now he had, you know, several hundred insurance policies he had sold over the year and several hundred investment accounts and things like that. So we didn't meet with everybody, but we met with a lot of people for the better part of, of 10 months. And that was ultimately that came to a point in November when, when we agreed, uh, we came to an agreement and he retired. So just talk us through this a little bit more that like you, you're having these simultaneous decisions of, I think the only way I'm going to be happy is if I am entirely under my own control as a fee only RIA and not, not doing any of the commission business. And then like literally in parallel, you're going down the road of buying, buying out this insurance commission based book of clients. Yeah, the irony is certainly not lost on me. I've, I've gotten quite a few eyebrow raises on that one. But one of the things I knew at the time, based on my conversations with Bruce, the retiring advisor, I, had knew, I knew with the conversations with him and also conversations with the clients that the relationship, he had great relationships with his clients. He's a great advisor, uh, but financial planning really wasn't part of, of that relationship. It was very much more investment driven or insurance driven if there were an insur- if there was an insurance policy in place. So in my mind, I thought, you know, this is an opportunity where, yes, it is a commission-based book of business, and it was primarily 12B1 revenue through American funds, and, and that was really the, the, the primary structure of, of Bruce's business. But I knew there was an opportunity that if we could build a relationship with the clients and build trust, obviously, with Bruce that this was something that we could introduce moving forward from a financial planning standpoint. And, and I also knew at the same time that the 
because we were going down this route, the change to a fee-only RIA was not going to be instantaneous because uh, there was going to be a timeline to to take over the business and ultimately then a timeline to to launch our own business. And we didn't want to do those both at the same time. We thought that that would be a little too much change for clients, especially because the, the, the business itself was primarily uh, folks that were around Bruce's age, which our retirement age. So we didn't, we didn't want to have too much change going on for them. But at the same time, we, we thought that based on our vision for the business moving forward and their situation, that financial planning was something that they could definitely benefit from. And if we led with financial planning, where the investments were located or how they were structured would be something that ultimately could be changed to a format that would be more conducive to the business that we wanted to build. So still got lots of questions about this. So I guess first, just help me understand the mindset shift a little more of just what, like, what was it that led you to this conclusion of, I'm I'm just not going to be able to create the thing I want unless I go hang a shingle as a fee-only RIA. Like just what, what pushed it to that point from having looked at, having been the insurance company and insurance BD and checking out independent BDs, like what, what led you to that conclusion? I think Danny and Tyler would certainly say this of me, and, and I've, I will admit that they're right. I think it's one of those things that I'm probably never going to be happy unless I have the freedom to do what I feel as though is in the best interest of the business or the best interest of the client. And what continually kept happening with the the insurance company firm we were at it, there was just a lot of pushback as far as if we wanted to create a, a weekly newsletter, email newsletter, for example, that was, there was no chance that was going to happen. If we wanted to do a podcast, student loan planning actually became a big thing that we had, again, because you know I'm in my low 30s and we had a lot of clients at the time that had significant student loan balances and, and they needed help. And, and we, would, we felt like, hey, this would be an area where we could help clients and, and yeah. do a little project work and get paid to do so. And that was just not something that the insurance company broker dealer was on board with. That was not something that we could charge for. And financial planning in general was something that was, there was a lot of gray area as far as what we could charge or what we couldn't charge at the time. So that part of it became pretty clear. There had to be a, a different option. And then, you know, when we explored the the independent broker dealer, it just felt like, again, really great people, a really great advisor, but it felt like it still didn't match exactly what we were looking for in the way we wanted to run our business. Um, even from the little things like we're typically more casual in, in when we meet with clients and they prefer, you know, the suit and tie approach. And it's just little stuff like that, that, for whatever reason, I don't know. It just tends to eat at me and I just can't, I have a hard time looking past it. So it, it just felt like, you know what, we've already gone down. We've already made all these changes. We're doing a lot of these things on our own or anyway. Why don't we just go all in on this and, and launch it on our own? Yeah, I'm sure there's stuff we're going to run into that we don't know, but we'll figure it out. So that's that's really what led to it. And then how did that launching process occur? Because it sounds like you had a period of time where you were standing up the RIA, but you still had the BD license as well. Yeah. So November 2019, we we completed the agreement with Bruce. And what happened from there is our initial plan was to was to launch the RIA pretty early at some point in, in 2020. But as fate would have it, my wife and Tyler's wife, actually, uh, we they both got pregnant. So so in the middle of COVID, we had, um, Mackenzie was born in October of 2020. And 
Eli was Elijah was born in four days prior, actually, in October of 2020. So we had two kids, and uh, it, between the kids and and COVID, it delayed our initial timeline. So we ended up pushing back the RIA timeline, which which actually worked out well. It, it allowed us to continue to build the relationships, particularly with the clients that we had purchased from Bruce, and, and build those relationships and get them comfortable enough to a point that. When we ultimately did launch the RIA in, in May of 2021, again, about a year and a half after we purchased Bruce's book of business, there was enough rapport and, and comfortability built up that it wasn't really a big deal. I'm sure you want to get into the uh, the actual purchase of the business from Bruce. Yeah, I'd, I'd love now just to understand more of just what exactly was Bruce's practice, like how many clients, how much revenue was there, what was the nature of the revenue, and, and ultimately... Like, how do you value it, particularly when you're anticipating at some point you may be transitioning to a different business model than the thing that you're buying? Yeah, it's a great question. And you know, one of the things I would advise anybody going down this route, we had a handshake agreement, like I said, in January. And what we did not have, though, is while we discussed informally valuation and, and all, all those kind of things, we'd never agreed to a number. We had thrown some numbers out. We had done, you know, just, just in conversation. And fortunately, everything worked out fine. But I, I do think from a best practice standpoint, it's probably better to iron out some of those details before uh, you, you get to the 11th hour and, and are, are right. officially signing the agreement. But what we agreed to was ultimately we did two times uh, recurring revenue. So in his case, there was approximately $100,000 of recurring revenue, which was primarily in the form of 12B1 fees uh, from the, the the mutual funds that that he had sold with and worked with clients. So it was 100000 of recurring revenue. We agreed to a $200,000 purchase price. And I know as many advisors that are in that situation that are retiring, I know that that was something that Bruce really struggled with as far as the two times revenue. He just kind of felt like, well, why, you know, two years of revenue, why, why wouldn't I just keep working, you know? And, and what's, that just seems yeah. low. And, and, and I understood, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot I could say to, you know, I didn't necessarily disagree, but the, the benchmarks are the benchmarks, the studies are the studies. And, and ultimately, I, kn- I know he felt comfortable that, that he wanted me to be the one to take over. And I felt like, you know, there is some risk here that the business isn't structured in a way that ultimately I want it to be structured from a, right. from a commission versus, you know, fee standpoint. It is an older client base. There was, you know, there were some factors that went into it that ultimately with just some back and forth, we were able to, to come to that agreement. And we did use FP transitions for the agreement part of the process. They were, they were very helpful um, in just drawing everything up on paper and, and, you know, accounting for everything that needed to be accounted for. But the valuation was just, conversation back and forth between between one another ultimately got to a point where we both felt comfortable enough to to make the deal and and when we did one of the benefits of being at the same broker dealer uh, because Bruce and I live in the same town and the same broker dealer that was something that they were helpful in that they could pretty seamlessly just transition the clients over from Bruce to me without signatures or, or anything like that because client accounts aren't moving, there's no there's no repapering. I guess just you you technically become the updated broker of record. Correct. Yep. So was this all mutual fund business? Was there like annuity and insurance trails and other things mixed in? There were, yeah. So there were there were uh, several hundred insurance policies that Bruce was the primary advisor for. There were quite a bit of annuities as well. 
So because we were still with the insurance company broker dealer, we did take over as the as the servicing advisor on those contracts as well. Um, obviously, that's not the case anymore. But at least for part of that transition, we were the servicing advisor on those on those policies. I was very transparent with Bruce from the get-go that ultimately what what our long-range plans were and, and why we felt like we were going to ultimately make some changes from where we were at to going the RIA route. So he understood that. He understood the direction that we wanted to take the business. So we really didn't take into account the, you know, the insurance renewals or the annuity trails because... So that, that wasn't even part of the valuation formula? No. Um, we just, we really just zeroed in on on the 12B1 revenue. I guess, well, you, you got the deal done so it 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 got agreed to. I guess just Bruce didn't have an issue with like you're only paying me for some of the revenue, but like I could have been selling the rest of this revenue if I worked with someone else or just had someone else who valued it because you guys don't. That wasn't a blocking point for you. No, because in his case, while there were several hundred maybe policies, because they had many of them had been around. He actually his father was in the business, so it, it goes back you know maybe sixty sixty plus years. So there weren't, there weren't a lot of trail options back then. No, no. There were, there, the recurring revenue or trails on these contracts were pretty minimal, honestly. I mean, okay. maybe maybe $10,000 in total. It wasn't, it wasn't a huge number. Okay. So lots of insurance business, but lots that had been paid out in upfront commissions a long time ago. So it wasn't, it wasn't actually the trails driver. The trails driver was the, the 12B1s from the mutual funds. Correct. Okay. So $100,000 in... 12B1 fees, I mean, was this a bunch of C shares at 1% or a bunch of A shares at 25 bips? Almost all A shares at 25 bips. So then I'm presuming this is 30 or $40 million of, of assets? Yep, you got it. Okay, which which I guess gets very interesting of, okay, if at some point we're going to transition this to a more holistic advisory offering, we're doing planning plus investments and we're charging one to one and a half percent, like I may be buying $100,000 of revenue, but if I can successfully transition these clients in your advisory model, this can be 400 plus thousand dollars of revenue for the same client base. Yeah, that was, uh, I couldn't say it any better myself. That was definitely something we we took into consideration and something we were very cognizant of. Interesting. So that's part of the growth, the strategic acquisition, the growth opportunity for you is if we can convert these clients to ongoing planning clients, even we don't even have to get all of them, just a significant chunk of them. And you can actually turn turn commission trails into a significantly larger chunk of business. Yep. That's exactly what the goal was. So how did this get handled just from a purchasing perspective? I mean, did, did you have cash? <laughs> like, how, how do you how do you actually finance and afford this? Yeah. So I feel very fortunate in that Bruce was really able to work with me that the way we structured things is I paid 5% down, which was $10,000 and the rest was seller financed. So he holds the note for that, for that business. We agreed upon an interest rate of I believe it's about four and a half percent. And every month I send him a check and he's happy and so am I. Okay. And and what what time period were you financing this over? Yeah, so he actually um he actually suggested ten years. He doesn't have a pension, so he wanted to view this as almost like a you know a ten year kind of pension for him. And as you can imagine, I was receptive to that because that helped lower the monthly payment. And well, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> and you're financing like let's stretch this out, man. Yeah, so I, I think uh, we were we were both pretty happy with that outcome. So a hundred thousand dollars of recurring revenue at two x is a two hundred thousand dollar purchase, but financed over ten years, it's you know, rough math of twenty thousand dollars a year plus interest of ongoing payments, which gets gets pretty manageable. Yep, I, I send him a check of two thousand two thousand dollars a month. 
Okay. Very cool. Very cool. So now take us forward. So you 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 come in, you buy the practice. It's got this base of of recurring revenue clients. The long term vision opportunities we're going to do more holistic financial planning services under an advisory structure. We're frankly maybe able to charge a full advisory fee, which really expands the revenue. But we haven't launched our RIA yet. And then pregnancies and babies and pandemics and other things kind of slow the process down. So wh- what was actually going on in 2020 and into 2021? Like, were you starting to convert to advisory accounts while you were still at the old company? Was that not even feasible? And it was just service the trails and get to know the clients? Like, how did this work when you're in transition limbo? <laughs> Yeah, it was a little bit of both. So we we scheduled meetings with as many of the clients as we possibly could right away. So after November and the agreement was finalized, we started meeting with all of the clients. Because I had gotten to know them previously leading up to the transition, that was really helpful. And And something I would give anybody considering doing this, you really have to have the support of the retiring advisor or the selling advisor. And Bruce was just so fantastic with just speaking highly of us and, and and helping anytime a client had a question that maybe we didn't know the answer because it was a 40-year-old insurance policy or whatever it was. He was just great and he continues to be great. So that I can't emphasize enough how important that is. But what we did start doing is we started having all the meetings with clients without Bruce in the room. And three questions that we asked every client, and I'm so glad we did this, were the first question was just, you know, your experience working with Bruce, can you just tell me what, what you enjoyed the most? And it was very clear what the clients enjoyed the most was the relationship. Bruce is just a very relationship-oriented guy. It wasn't, obviously, again, he wasn't doing financial planning, so they, they wouldn't right. mention that kind of stuff. It was just, I like that he sent these birthday cards with jokes in them. And I like that, you know, <laughs> we, he would come to the house and we would we would hang out. And so and that we're, we're relationship-oriented as well. So that was, that was uh, good to hear. The second question was, okay, you know, you've worked with Bruce a while. Can you tell me, was there anything that you wish he would have done differently or could be improved upon? And for the most part, there wasn't a whole lot. I think, though, the things that did tend to come up were more financial planning related. It was stuff like, well, you know, I had this 401k, but I we never really talked about it because it wasn't something Bruce was managing. Or I have some tax questions mm-hmm. or, or whatever. And and that that kind of stuff was right in our wheelhouse. So we felt like, right. okay, this is, this is really good. And then the third question was, and I, I would say to clients that, you know, one of the things that we do a little differently than Bruce is we believe wholeheartedly in the importance of fee transparency. And and the way your accounts are set up currently, they're in a commission-based format. If I were to ask you what you're paying, Bruce, to be your advisor, do you have any idea how you would answer that question? And everybody would kind of look at me or they would look at their, their spouse and say, you know, we really like Bruce, but we have no idea. We've often asked that question of of, of what he was being paid to do this or, or whatever it may be. And and you know, to Bruce's credit, I'm certain he talked about a share load fees and, and all that kind of stuff. But <laughs> no just, one remembers it. No, yep. Right. No one remembers that stuff. And and that was that was I'm glad I asked the question because I then the way I would frame it is I would transition to saying, Well, we do things a little differently. Our fee is transparent. You're gonna see it on every quarterly statement you get. And here's how we would suggest going about doing that and some changes we would suggest making to the portfolio or the financial plan or whatever it may be. And pretty quickly, you know, we grew our AUM in in, in the middle of the, right in the dead, dead of the pandemic, we grew it from 10 million to 30 million within a few months. 
So those were with primarily with the clients that we were just able to get in front of. And, and that was, again, while we still were with the broker dealer, uh, we just we just presented some recommendations and and they went with it. So meaning these clients started shifting from their commission trails to an advisory account while you were still with the broker dealer. Exactly. Yep. Okay. And, and so that, I guess, so that's how you're distinguishing sort of assets that were in mutual fund commission products versus quote, AUM is like the, the assets that have literally transitioned into advisory accounts. Right. Yep. Okay. So I guess two follow on questions for this one, what was your setup for advisory accounts? Like, were you self-managing or like, were you using a TAMP platform, something else? Like how, how what did you actually do as you started building uh, advisory? We use a TAMP. Um, we've used we've used TAMPs really since since we started managing investment accounts. So we use a TAMP in that process. And what was your what was your TAMP of choice? We we use a couple. So so currently we're using uh, when we made the change to the RA world, we use First Ascent Asset Management for for quite a bit of our clients now. At the time, it was primarily and still is Mariner Wealth Advisors is is our TAMP. Okay. And what led you to to First Ascent and Mariner in in particular? So Mariner was because primarily because in the insurance BD world there are only you know a handful of TAMPs that are approved and they were one of the ones that were on the list and my background I mean I, I didn't even for the first five years of my career I only had my insurance license so I, I didn't I wasn't securities license and what the investments really weren't a part of uh, or a significant part of the conversation. So when I got securities license, I still knew the investments were, were, I still felt like it was kind of a weak spot for me. So we preferred working with TAMPS. And honestly, the insurance company, they preferred that too. They, they you know, that's that's what they were. They didn't want your focus necessarily to be on that. So we partnered with Mariner. And then since then, we've also partnered with First Ascent. The appeal there is is primarily from a flat fee kind of pricing model that they implement, I think is is really unique and, and a credit to them. So that relationship is newer since you know we launched in, in May of 2021. So they're they're a flat flat fee as a TAMP provider. Correct. Correct. Um, so I, I you know I think they're they're about fourteen hundred dollars per household is is the maximum fee. And that is attractive when you have clients that are retirees and in some cases have millions of dollars. The traditional TAMP right. model is basis points and, and can add up to be a pretty significant number. So, All right. Well, on a, on a million dollar account, $1,400 per household is 14 basis points and $2 million, you're down to seven basis points. So that fee, if you calculate it as BIPs, gets, gets pretty low pretty quick. Yeah, exactly right. So yeah, they've been they've been a good partner here since we've launched the RAA, and um, we also use Betterment as well. Betterment for advisors for a lot of the younger clients. And so why why Betterment for advisors when you've already got all these others as well? I think just uh, credit to Betterment. They're just they, from a technology standpoint, the ease of opening an account and just the platform they've created is just. It's very convenient, cost effective, and honestly, from a from a fee standpoint, with both Mariner and First Ascent, the, the there is a basis point fee in First Ascent's case to, up to a certain level of assets. So when you're working with a smaller client, they tend to be a better a smaller client from an, an account standpoint. They tend to be a better fit for uh, better. Okay, so so First Ascent is basis points, but basis points up to a cap. So once you get above the once you get above an asset threshold, it's basically just a flat fee, but for a small client, you're still on basis points that may not be as competitive to others for small clients. Exactly. Yep. Okay. So you start building this and knowing that you're going to have a transition at some point. So 
what happens as you get to the transition? Like how how much got transitioned from mutual funds to advisory before you got to you know the the following year when it was time to go RIA and and how did you actually do this transition? So we grew. We had about ten million under under management prior to the finalization of the agreement with Bruce by about. May of 2020, so about six months later, we grew from 10 million to 30 million. So we had tripled, and that was pretty much exclusively with his clients. Then, well, as we sit here today, we've we've doubled again. So we're just about at 60 million. So we we've moved about 20 million in that first six month period. We probably moved another 10 or so leading up to the RAA launch uh, the following year in May of 2021. And then since then, we've added another. 15 to 20 million through our own clients and referrals, but also through some folks that either didn't make sense to, to switch from commissions to, to uh, fee-based or just for whatever reason, the timing wasn't right or we couldn't get a hold of them or whatever the case may be. So talk to us a little bit further about how you how you have the conversation with clients to just to get them comfortable with this new fee structure. I mean, just if you're talking more about fee transparency, like, like you know, let's be really clear about what you were paying Bruce and what we're going to charge. And you know, at the end of the day, like your quarterly fee was basically Bruce's annual fee, right? If you go from 25 bips a year to 25 bips a, a quarter. So just how does that conversation work of the just the magnitude of the fee change that comes through in this transition? You know, the first part of the conversation I mentioned to you was just the importance of transparency and, and and telling them that our fee would show up on the statement. But you're right. The second part was, well, okay, but compared to what? <laughs> you know, what is your fee compared to Bruce's? Yeah. And the and the way things worked out is most of the clients, they were in act, primarily actively managed mutual funds in working with Bruce. So the all-in from an expense ratio standpoint, it was pretty common, especially if there were annuities that the clients were paying roughly 1% from an expense ratio standpoint, which again included Bruce's 12B1 fee. Whereas compared to us, which we're more on the, you know, the passive low-cost uh, way of building investment portfolios, an all-in expense ratio might be somewhere in the ballpark of one and a half percent or so. It's lower than that if, if depending on the client assets. So the way we would explain it to clients is we would show them what the fee will be moving forward. And we would also you know, very clearly articulate, but here's what you're getting. And he, the, the, what they were getting was financial planning. I mean, Roth conversions were a huge one with with that client base that just something that hadn't been discussed previously, qualified charitable distributions, just a lot of tax-related things that they just weren't aware of. And as part of the conversation, it I, I think became pretty clear to those clients that we could help and we could do some things that was were important to them and and also some things that weren't being discussed previously. So even if there was a difference in the fee from what they were paying to what they would be paying, uh, honestly, I don't I don't I can't recall maybe more than one conversation where we really had to dig into the weeds of what they were paying working with Bruce versus what they would be paying working with us. For the most part, everybody was very receptive to that change, as long as they understood it wasn't a huge difference in fees, and and they what they were getting in return far exceeded that that cost. Because while the advisor payment was very different, the all in cost was a much narrower difference. Because Bruce had Bruce had higher cost actively managed funds. You're you're taking a larger advisory fee, but you're using lower cost vehicles to implement, and so total cost of ownership was a much narrower change than advisory compensation payments. Exactly right. Yep. Okay. And just how did this transition work when eventually you had to go to clients and explain like you're you're leaving your well I would say you're repapering. Obviously, you don't say it that way to clients, but 
they just transitioned away from Bruce to you 18 months ago, and now you're going and saying, hey, there's another transition coming. We're going out and launching our own firm. Like, how did that, how do you break that news? How do you have that conversation so that they don't get antsy with all the change? Yeah, you know, it was, there were definitely some questions, um, you know, that especially the folks that were clients of Bruce that had, or like you said, just made this change 18 months prior. But it was a lot of phone calls. And again, I think that the two things that worked to our advantage were that we had enough opportunity to, ha- at that point, we, for many of the clients, we had had several meetings already since the, since uh, Bruce's retirement with them that I think enough rapport was built that they felt good when we were able to explain to them why we were making the change, what it meant for them, what it means for us moving forward. They were all, for the most part, very supportive. But again, I think the, the other key point here was Bruce definitely got some calls. You know, he would tell you that there were a number of clients that reached out that said, wait a minute, why are these guys now making this change? And I don't know how I feel about that. And he was just super supportive. He explained to them what we had explained too, but but coming from him, it, it just added an extra weight behind us that that was very helpful. Maybe a handful of clients that weren't comfortable and, and preferred to stay with with the you know the, the insurance company broker dealer and, and whoever the new rep was. But for the most part, everybody was just really supportive and receptive. And I think a large part of that was partly because of the relationships we built and partly because of Bruce's support. So did you track it all? Like how many actually transitioned? How many didn't transition? Like what was the retention through the transition or the, or the attrition in the process? Yeah. So it's what I, what I can tell you definitively is of the 75 planning clients that we have today, 25 of those were clients of Bruce. In addition to that, there are 46 investment management only type clients that also came with. So in total, it's about 70 or so clients that, that did come with. And, and for the most part, what, what ends up happening in that kind of business, and I think Bruce would be the first to admit this, is yes, you may have hundreds of insurance policies under your name or even a couple hundred investment accounts. You've written, written about this a lot. There's only so many people you can have an active relationship, an ongoing relationship with. And, right. and for us, you know, it was those 71 people that ultimately came with in, in varying capacities and even, you know, in Bruce's case, um, the number may have been higher than 71 that he was meeting with somewhat regularly, but there were a lot of people, I think, that he wasn't. And and those people, right. we we weren't even able to get on the phone. It just, or, sent, you know, we sent letters, we tried to get people on the phone, but there was a large, a large part of the client base that we just really had no contact with. So the folks that we made contact with, like I said, I, 90 plus percent of them ended up coming with, there were a handful that didn't, but yeah. So as you look back on this journey, what's surprised you the most about trying to build your own advisory business? I think it's all the things I didn't know. You know, if I think in, in the early part of my career, I couldn't even spell RIA. I had no idea what an, what an RIA was when I was in the insurance company world. In the middle part of the career, I had no idea how we would start our own RIA despite the fact that, I mean, I had a Google Doc of articles and podcasts and information I'd accumulated of 20 pages long. And even then still, you can only be so prepared. It's, 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 I'll give the analogy. It's almost like becoming a parent for the first time, like, like I, like I did last year. And you can read all the books, you can do all of it, but until you have a night where they're up all night screaming and you're changing diapers and you're totally exhausted, it just, there's, there's no amount of preparation you can do. So I, I think the, the, the amount that I just, I did the unknowns, the things I continue to not know has just been the most surprising for sure. Any just particular things that stuck or or hit harder in in the the unknowns that surprised you? 
I think the biggest thing is just is just the this world of financial planning and and fee only financial planning and and like I said for seven plus years I I just had no idea it even existed so when when that light bulb uh, went off that was that was just a huge moment for me. So what was the low point for you on this journey? Yeah, I think when the team of six went from to a team of almost one, that was really tough. And you know I, I didn't mention this previously, but. Uh, it actually literally was almost one. I mean, Tyler, who I'd made the offer to the $24,000 a year, that was only after he had told me he was leaving. You know, he kind of came in, closed the door and said, like, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I just have to support my family. I can't, I can't do this. And that was tough. That was a really tough day. I felt like those two guys, Danny and Tyler, I'm as close to them as, as my own brother. I mean, I, I would do anything for them. And, and the fact that I felt like when that was all happening, that I had failed them is just, it was a really tough pill to swallow. That was a really hard day. Fortunately, I was able to, uh, to kind of make that hail Mary, hail Mary offer and, and keep Tyler aboard. And I'm so glad we, I did because we wouldn't be here without, without his support. And, but that was, that was definitely the low point for sure. And so any, I don't know, any regrets or anything you would change about how you did that transition? <laughs> you know, I, I don't think so. I, I think the easy answer would be, it'd be easy for me to sit here and say, uh, I wish I had stumbled across your website sooner or the podcast or, you know, all those resources. But I'm a believer. My journey is my journey. I'm, I'm on the path I'm on and I'm right where I need to be. The only thing I think I wish I could go back and tell myself maybe three or four years ago is just just that it's all going to be okay. It's going to work out and you know, you're going to be okay. The team's going to be okay. There were a lot of sleepless nights. I mean, it was just really tough. I mean, thank God for my wife. She, her support throughout this process and even certainly to this day has just been instrumental. I can't imagine doing it without her. And, and, but yeah, to go back a few years ago and say, you know, that tell that that Mike that this is going to be okay, that that would have gone a long way because, like I said, there were a lot of sleepless nights. So, what advice would you give younger, newer advisors coming in looking at going in the business today? I think the single biggest thing I would tell a newer advisor is expand your network. You know, go outside of your company or your broker dealer or whatever it may be. And certainly if you're listening to listening to this podcast, you've done that to some extent. But go go even further. I mean, there are so many great communities out there, um, to name a few, XY Planning Network. The advisor growth community has been absolutely intr- instrumental for me and, and, and the bonds I've formed then. I've, I've you know, joined a study group from, from my affiliation with the AGC. FinTwit on Twitter. I mean, there's just, there's so many different people and groups and communities out there that if you get so bogged down in, in your company or your, or your broker dealer, I think you're really missing a lot of different perspective and, and resources that, that you could benefit from. So what comes next for you? It's a good question, Michael. Um, it's something we're, I've been thinking about a lot lately and it's, I feel like I'm at a crossroads right now where for so long I've had, I felt like I've been running on this treadmill at, at, full speed, just trying to trying to get the business to a point where we were sustainable, not only from a revenue standpoint, but just serving clients in the way that we felt it, it would be best. It's been a lot of work to get to this point, and I feel like we're, we've maybe turned a corner there. But something you've written about a lot is that small giant concept. And, and something that's kind of stood out to me is, is to use an analogy 
uh, our story from the e-myth is, you know, I, I really enjoy one of the things I could see myself doing more of moving forward is being the the pie shop owner instead of the person that's baking all the pies. And I think right now my role is a little bit of both. And and I certainly mm-hmm. would like to continue keeping a hand in the financial planning process and working with clients. But I also know that there's an opportunity out there to bring advisors into the business in a way that I wasn't necessarily brought into. And, and I think that that small giant concept really resonates with me. You know, we've, while we've, when we made this journey to go the RA route, one of the ideas we had in mind was really what XY Planning Network is founded upon, which is serving more of your peers and, and that millennial generation, which I am a part of. And we haven't really had an opportunity to dig as deep into that market as I would like to because of the purchase of the business and mm. and just our, our, our initial client base. It is more retiree focused. And I think that that's something that as a business, we would really like to, to focus on moving forward. I think um, personally where I'm at in, in my life right now with, with a one-year-old and and hopefully more in the future, you know, the, the lifestyle aspect of, of the business is something that I'm really going to be prioritizing for the first time this year. My goal is to is to take 100 days off. So, you know, I, I'm really pro- trying to prioritize family time. But at the same time, from a business perspective, we're definitely looking to start shifting our efforts towards that young professional niche, so to speak. And and trying to find a partner that we could bring into the business that could help us grow that segment of our business. And, and you know, whether that's somebody that's maybe on a track I was on and, and thinks there's a better way to do things from a financial planning perspective, or maybe even somebody that that already launched their firm and, and realized that this might not be the right fit for them. They don't enjoy the compliance and, and bookkeeping and, and all that kind of stuff. We have a, a bit of an infrastructure built up that... Finding that partner and, and that small giant concept is something that definitely resonates with me and, and trying to help as, as many people as possible, but keeping enough balance on, on the personal side that I can spend time with, with my family and, and my growing family. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes that always comes up is just the word success means different things to different people. And so you're, you're on this this wonderful track for building the the advisory firm successfully and, and get, getting the fast start from a, from a strategic acquisition. The business is going well, but I'm wondering, how do you define success for yourself at this point? Yeah, you know, that's something I've thought about a lot. And I think for me, the best way I can describe success is balance. And what I mean by that is, you know, we we can get so caught up in running a business and being an entrepreneurs that, and this is something I'm I'm obviously super passionate about. I, I love what I do, but we can get so caught up in doing that that we can lose sight of some of the other priorities in our life. And for me, the way I define success is just how I'm showing up in the life of of others that I care about. So whether that's as a a father, a husband, a son, a brother, a friend, a colleague, however that is, um, you know, I just want those people that are closest to me know how much I care about them and how much they're loved. And if they're feeling that, then I'm doing a good job and and that's success for me. Well, very cool. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Michael. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? 
check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.